Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Today is Tuesday, March 30th, 2021. Coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered, another devastating day in the murder trial of Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis. We'll show you excerpts of what happened today in court and break it down with attorney Yodita Welday. Amazon workers are voting on whether to form a union in Alabama. Reverend Dr. William J. Barber will be here to talk about his efforts to help them make it happen. There will be no convictions in the case of an undercover black cop beaten by his white colleagues in the 2017 protest. We'll talk with a spokesperson for the Ethical Society of Police in St. Louis about that. In Virginia, the Virginia Beach NAACP is calling for change as our officer's body cam footage was not activated during a fatal shooting this weekend. Plus, President Joe Biden announced his first slate of judicial nominees, including three black women. And the judge rules that New York must offer vaccines to all prisoners immediately. Folks, we'll also talk about why it's important for black media to get major black dollars so we can fund the black community. I'll break it down in a deconstruction. It's time to bring the funk on Roller Martin Unfiltered. Let's go.
More witnesses took the stand today in the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, including, a, uh, first of all, of course, he's the one charged with murdering George Floyd, folks, uh, riveting their testimony, including a nine-year-old who testified in two high school seniors. Here's what took place. At some point, um, did you make a 911 call? That is correct. Uh, I did call the police on the police. Right. And why did you do that? Because uh, I believe I witnessed a murder. All right. So uh, if we can at this point, then play Exhibit 20. 
he was in pain. Let me stop you there for just a second, uh, Darnell. And so when you say, first of all, he, are you referring to the person you come to know as George Floyd? Yes. Uh, did you know anything about Mr. George Floyd before May 25th? No. Had you ever met him before? No. Ever seen him before, to your knowledge? No. So when you came back uh, to this scene here that we can see in Exhibit uh, 16, what did you do when you first got there? And we see where you're standing. What did you do? I pulled out my phone. And what were you doing to pull out your phone? Recording and capturing what I was seeing. So tell the jury what you observed, what you heard uh, when you stopped to look at what was happening there at the scene. I heard George Floyd saying, <clears throat> I can't breathe, please get off of me. I can't breathe. He, he cried for his mom. He was in pain. It seemed like he knew like he knew it was over for him. He was terrified. He was suffering. This was a cry for help. Joining us right now is attorney Yodita Welde. Of course, uh, she also is with America's Most Wanted. Uh, the um, uh, th This was a, a unbelievable day of testimony, Yodita, uh, all across the board. Uh, to hear uh, these uh, three minors testify, uh, having to also relive that video describing what took place. Uh, but the mixed martial arts uh, fighter, uh, he was asked, point blank, why'd you call the cops? And he said, because I thought, I felt I witnessed a murder. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, the prosecution's starting really strong. They had a strong day yesterday. They're continuing um, to have a strong case by putting up these bystanders who in real time can show these jurors what they experience and what they continue to experience because of that uh, traumatic day. But I will say with the Marshall Mix um, expert or uh, fact witness, that is Don, uh, Mr. Williams, he didn't have a great cross-examination. You could see that he was really getting frustrated, combative, defensive. Uh, makes me actually question whether the prosecutors actually warned these witnesses that that is something to expect. But what that tape did, that 911 call being played for the jury, he may not have been as effective today in his testimony, but that 911 call said everything he needed to say to those jurors that he couldn't say on that stand. So still very powerful. This is, um, uh, I mean, obviously it, it is very hard for folks to have to, to relive this and also them playing the video of different angles for us to actually see yeah. that, uh, that Derek Chauvin was not the only officer putting his weight uh, on the body of George Floyd. Yeah. Um, seeing these different angles and hearing people's, again, real-time narration really puts things into perspective for some of these jurors who actually said that they'd never actually seen the video in full. Some have never seen it at all. Some only saw parts of it. So this is definitely eye-opening for them. But um, if you remember the 911 dispatcher, she was able to uh, walk the jurors through this video that no one had seen in the public. It was perched up. It was a police camera that was across the street from uh, Cup Foods. And for her to say, I thought that the video had frozen. That's how long they were on George Floyd that she had to do something that was completely out of the norm for a 911 dispatcher. And that was to call a supervisor and say, something is going on. So for her, someone who's never had police training, any type of use of force training to know 
that common sense and reason tells her something is off about this video, that's what the jurors can do. Um, this is, uh, of course, when you talk about, uh, again, the, the way the prosecutors are approaching this, uh, very methodical. And look, if you're a prosecutor, you want to lead with your strongest people. You don't want to sort of just, you know, meander into this. Look, they've had a strong two days. And you talk about putting the defense on the defense. That certainly has been yeah. the case. Yeah. I mean, the defense is always going to have an uphill battle, but certainly in this case, because of that video. So the prosecutors, like you said, start strong. And that's what was a little confusing when they started with the 911 dispatcher. You thought that they might have started with a family member or maybe one of those uh, younger minor bystanders. But I see why they did it now. She had something powerful to say. And it's the start of a chain of, 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 of events from that day. But they want to play that tape as much as possible. And they're getting to do that through the bystanders who were recording from different angles. So as many times as they could start that video and stop it frame by frame and have a witness testify to what they're watching, they are ingraining in these jurors' minds what this was like on that day for not only George Floyd, but for these bystanders too. So but if also, I were the prosecutor, uh -huh. yeah, go ahead, I'm sorry. But, but, no, if no, I were go, if go I ahead, the go prosecutor, ahead. I was gonna say that that is the goal. Keep playing that video from every single angle as much as possible. The defense has nothing to contradict that video. They can try and poke holes, that's what they're doing, that's their job, to muddy the waters. But there is no combating that video in real time to watch what it is that's happening to George Floyd that, again, the defense said in their opening statements to, for the jurors to use their common sense and reasoning. When you look at that video, you don't need training to know that common sense and reasoning says that what was happening to George Floyd was absolutely unreasonable and excessive. Uh, but, but on that particular point, here's the other piece, because I, I go back to the Rodney King uh, trial. Uh, the defense yeah. attacked the video because it was only one angle. Well, yeah. you, it will, you, if you look at the video in terms of the positioning, not really on his deck. No, no. In this case, you've yes. got multiple videos, multiple angles. And so you're the fence. you you got to figure out if you're going to try to discredit the video, you're not going to discredit all of them from different angles as opposed to what we've seen in previous trials. But even if they try to discredit the angles, you have the actual witnesses testifying to what it is is in the video. So... so what the prosecutors are doing, and they should be doing this, is putting on all these witnesses to also supplement what it is that they're watching. So you can't discount them, especially those younger kids. The ones that were minors at the time, the 17, the 18-year-olds, it's really hard for the defense to go on the attack and cross-examine them, right? These are people who are still suffering, who still think about that day. One of them said they can't even walk down that street anymore. It would look very bad on the part of the defense to try and attack them. It's their job, but not a good look in front of the jury. All right, then. Your need to well day. Uh, we appreciate it. Thank you so very much. We'll keep, uh, of course, we're streaming this trial every single uh, day. Uh, folks can watch it on our YouTube channel, Facebook and, uh, Facebook and Twitter accounts as well to keep up with what's going on. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right. Going to pull the panel up right now, folks. Uh, 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 run Walker, founder of Context Media, Kelly Bethea, communication strategist, Mustafa Santiago Ali, Ph.D., former senior advisor for environmental, for environmental justice, EPA, and will be joined in a second by uh, attorney Monique Presley. Uh, I'll start with you, uh, Mustafa. We look at, again, this testimony. Very difficult for folks to have to relive this. Uh, but there are a lot of folks who certainly want to see Derek Chauvin found guilty in the murder of George Floyd. Yeah. You know, it was so raw and visceral and, and painful and necessary. 
you know, for folks to actually move into the space where George Floyd was and to understand what it felt like to, to know that you're losing your life and that no one was coming to your assistance, you know, especially the folks who are in law enforcement who are supposed to protect all communities, all individuals, you know, are the ones who are, who are, who are doing this heinous act. So each and every one of those uh, witnesses took us, you know, on this journey of what they were feeling. Um, and then, of course, what George was going through. So I thought that it was powerful. You know, I've never been one who wanted to see folks who were polished. I want to know the realness of what you were experiencing and what you saw and what you felt and translating, of course, what George was going through. So um, I'm looking forward to the rest of the case. And we all pray um, that this man is found guilty. And then people paying attention to all the other officers who also played a role in George losing his life. Um, the thing here, um, Kelly, as we as we look at um, how uh, this trial is playing out, um, the fact that we literally are witnessing a cop on trial, I think that's was also a lot different because for, for the most part, this never happens. Uh, and so to actually get to a trial uh, is something that's totally different than what we normally used to. Absolutely. I applaud uh, Minneapolis uh, prosecutors and the state's attorney's office for even bringing charges to the table. Um, that is definitely a sign of times changing and actually holding officers accountable. Um, now that we're here, uh, we need a conviction, right? Because from the court of public opinion, it is pretty clear that this man um, committed a murder against George Floyd. But in court, they need to prove that outside of just, you know, opinion and the like. And that's what I feel the prosecution is doing um, right now by bringing out these witnesses, the questions that they're uh, asking, the uh, questions that the witnesses are answering, um, and the way in which they're answering them. We saw a lot of raw emotion in the courtroom today. We saw um, a few tears shed, a few... Um, I, I think the previous attorney said a little bit of combativeness, um, mainly because it is reasonable for a person to feel that way. It is reasonable to see something like that and have a visceral reaction to it, to have a strong reaction to it. It is reasonable to see an officer doing that and actually trying to do something to stop um, a murder from occurring. And the only person who was unreasonable that day, the only people unreasonable that day, were the cops that were on George Floyd's neck. And that is what prosecution is trying to establish here. Um, the defense today, of course, um, everyone's entitled to a good defense. However, um, it's weak. It is incredibly weak because we have the video, because we have these eyewitnesses, because, frankly, there is nothing... Um, that the defense can bring about outside of an officer being distracted, um, unnecessarily so, mind you. Um, that's really their only defense. And, you know, if if the jury is really paying attention um, and leave their bias at the door, we're actually going to get a conviction. I, I definitely believe that. Um, Teron, the... Um... You know, again, on that particular point here, uh, I will not uh, go as far as to say we're going to get a conviction, uh, only being I just simply don't trust juries when it comes to cops being on trial. 
Um, I think one good thing that's come out of this testimony that we're seeing, especially today, is that what we're, what we're seeing is a humanizing of George Floyd. Everything that happened to him from the time that he was surrounded by those police officers to the time that he was put on the ground and they surrounded him to put their knee, the, the Derek Chauvin put his knee on his neck and snuffed out his life was a dehumanization of his um, life and his, his manhood. What you saw today from the emotion from the witnesses and from the pain and the tears that we saw on the witness stand, what you're seeing is the true definition of what his life could have meant. And even if they may not have known him, they saw a human life being snuffed out. And I think that's what happens a lot of times when there's interaction between black people and police officers. A lot of times they don't see us as full human beings, so they feel, in, they feel empowered to enact any kind of atrocity on us because they don't think there's going to be any kind of consequence to that. You can see that that's something that's on a continuum all the way down from the end of the Civil War, where black males were seen as like these dangerous boogeymen or these giants that needed to be brought to heel, that they needed to be... Um, cowed or they needed to be disciplined or eliminated if they got too far out of line. So I think this is what you're seeing right now is that you're, they're painting a picture for the jury that George Floyd was an actual human being and that he deserved due process and he deserved to live and his life did not deserve to be snuffed out that way. Um, this is, uh, again, uh, when you look at um, how, this, how this trial is going, uh, a lot of people, I've been seeing the comments on social media there, they, you know, they are, they're having to, having to relive this, but, but folks, that, that's what's going to happen in trial. Uh, in a trial, you're, you're going to have to uh, go through this. You're going to have to watch the video uh, over and over and over again because of the point Yodit made, uh, they are trying, uh, Mustafa, to, to, to imprint that into the minds of a juror so no matter what the defense does when they get a chance to put their trial on, that video will be too powerful for them to overcome. Yeah, you know, we know that in, in these trials that we, when, like you said, when it actually comes to trial, that we have a very high hurdle uh, to actually get a conviction. And, and that's why the humanization of, of George Floyd is so important. That's why these jurors having to feel that pain you know, the pain of knowing that you're about to take your last breath and also looking and seeing how these officers, when they didn't have to continue to restrain him and hold him down and place their knee on his neck, how they are responsible for what transpired. So if we have to watch it a hundred times, and I know it's difficult, I have a difficult time watching it because I feel each and every second of what was going through. And I know there are millions of other people who feel that also. We need to feel that pain so that we don't make the mistake that has been made so many times before when we allow officers, bad officers, to get off, to get off with a, a hand slap or to get off with a fine or, or to get off um, by just losing their job when somebody's lost their life. So it's important for us to watch this, to internalize it, uh, and for the jurors to internalize it. Um, and, uh, again, to be, to be methodical uh, as possible, um, look, what you have here, uh, Kelly, this has been the prosecution is being led by Keith Ellison, the attorney general for the state of Minnesota. Uh, they took this out of the hands of the local DA. We remember what took place when Angela Corey prosecuted the case of Trayvon Martin, really screwed it up uh, in, in many ways. And so uh, that's also, I think, critically important. 
It, it's definitely important. Um, again, I applaud Ellison for doing that. But at the end of the day, regardless of which uh, set of prosecutors have this case, the the fact of the matter is they just need to paint a crystal clear picture of not only what happened, but a, a story as to why Chauvin needs to be convicted. Um, I, I hear this all the time on social media. It's been on your show as well. But I have to reiterate, this is a trial about Chauvin, not a trial about Floyd. It's about Chauvin's actions to Floyd. It's not about anything that Floyd did beforehand, any rumors of what he could have done, should have done, what have you. It's not about any of that. It is about the fact that on that day, Chauvin used excessive force and was acting unreasonable as an officer um, towards this human being. Um, and as a result, Floyd died. That's why we're here. So again, regardless of whether Ellison had it, local DA had it, we need that picture painted and we need that conviction made. Um, the uh, the next piece uh, to run is going to be, again, um, uh, we'll see how long the prosecution puts on their case. But then, of course, the defense gets their chance. Uh, let's go to Monique Presley, uh, who is uh, an attorney. She's been following uh, the trial as well. Uh, folks, is she ready? All right. Let's see if we can. Uh, okay, let's go to Monique. Monique? I'm here. All right, you've been live, you've been tweeting uh, throughout the day uh, this trial. Just your assessment of what took place today on day two. I, this was this was a hard day, Roland. Um, and I've been doing this for a long time, and it did not make it any easier. Uh, I've been in trials where officers were accused of shooting and killing people, shooting them in the back. Um, drowning them, all, all kinds of things on both sides of cases. And this was still just very difficult to ingest. Uh, one, one thing that the day started with, uh, obviously, that many people had not heard before, though they do it often, I don't think it really came to the conscience of people. Uh, when, when Donald Williams, when the witness said he had to call the police on the police, I believe that that struck a chord with many because he didn't feel safe reporting the crime that he knew he saw with the officers who were present. He felt it necessary for his own protection. And in order to have the event reported, he felt it necessary to call on the phone. What, what is the status of, of law enforcement? Uh, of criminal justice in our country, where you can watch someone be killed and have a ton of people who are supposed to be protecting and serving, who are right there in front of you, and a Black man in America doesn't feel safe enough to tell any of them what he saw. And that was followed up, sandwiched with, on the other end, uh, the firefighter who said she was focused after Mr. Floyd was, was taken away by the ambulance on the fact that there were people of color and black men on the street, and she was concerned for their safety. So the very thing that that first, if we could not stage it any better if this was theater, except for this was real. This is the way that true um, trial attorneys 
set up their cases. So what the witness was saying on the front end was sandwiched at the end of the day with a separate witness who had the same concern. And in between that, you've got these minors for, to whom we owe the video, uh, to whom we owe these 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 accounts that were eyewitness accounts from those who really don't have any axe to grind and are too young to be impure in what they're seeing. We heard from a nine-year-old girl. Um, and so hearing that testimony and everybody saying the same thing. Nobody is saying he was resisting. Nobody is saying he was fighting back. Nobody is saying that there was anything they could see that was a justification for the actions of the defendant on that day. The uh, next step, uh, obviously, is for the prosecution uh, to continue to move forward. Uh, your, we had Yodit on, and she talked about, again, how uh, the prosecutors were strong in the first two days. Uh, again, your assessment of how they are laying out uh, this case. They're doing um, a textbook job of laying out the case. I heard some criticism yesterday because it didn't have fireworks, bells, whistles, things that people who expect theater may expect, you know, it's not Matlock moments, especially though when you have the state, when you've got the prosecutors, the government presenting a case. Their job is to do so very methodically and to do it absent error. They've had the time uh, to put forward and to plan the case that they're putting forward. They shouldn't be surprised by their own witnesses, even though, as we saw yesterday and again today, you have hesitant, recalcitrant, remorseful, emotional witnesses who are having to recall probably one of the most hideous things and horrific things that they've seen in their lives. So the prosecutors are having to do a dance. What you find and what I see them doing, which to me, again, is textbook and accurate, is that they are putting forth their fact witnesses. And, and if the fact witness also happens to be someone who took a type of physical evidence to go along with it, whether it was audio, whether it was video, whether they can provide um, information that that informs on sketches that were taken on the scene, all the different vantage points, and you see how the prosecution is laying one on top of the other, and they've got them all lined up in terms of the time and the sequence of events. Um, so you've got them doing that, but what they're going to do after they finish with these, the experts are going to come behind. So even though uh, Donald Williams was able to testify basically like a martial arts expert and talk about the shimmy on the neck and talk about the way that asphyxia works and the way that when you've got pressure on both sides of the neck and it starts to restrict blood flow and that causes for other things to shut down in the body. So we got all of that from an eyewitness. When does that happen? You've got an eyewitness who's a martial arts expert. You've got an eyewitness who's a firefighter, you know, who's who's trained um, EMT. You've got eyewitnesses who are young people who were in the scene. Then the real experts are going to come behind that and say, when this witness was talking about the shimmy, here's what we can see from the physical evidence, from the examination, from the autopsy. Here's what we can see as people who are trained in the use of excessive force and why it violated excessive force. So it's going to be a progression. There's a reason that they haven't put up any of the law enforcement fact witnesses yet. 
they're going to come next. That's like the next stage. And then after that, you're going to have the experts. And the reason why they wait is because experts are allowed to stay in the courtroom the entire time and observe everything. They listen to the prosecution. They listen to the cross-examination. And then they're called because they can be asked to comment on what prior witnesses have said. So it's very important that even if you've got the best, you know, use of force expert in the world, you're not going to put him up first before you know what the firefighter said, what the nine-year-old girl said, what the 17-year-old girl said, what all of these people said. And forgive me, I don't have all of their names. I'm not looking at my notes. I'm just going by memory. Um, but these humans who in very real time showed what community looks like when they all were joined together witnessing this horrifying event. All right. Monique Presley, attorney, we surely appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, folks, uh, the votes are in and the countdown is underway. It could take up to several days or weeks for workers at Amazon's Bessemer, Alabama warehouse to find out if they'll become the company's first unionized workforce in America. Efforts to unionize began last summer when a few employees reached out to the retail, wholesale and department store union. Months of protesting, unfair working conditions and Amazon's poor COVID response have culminated into this moment, a historic vote that could have major implications for the e-commerce giant moving forward. Uh, there have been, a, uh, again, as I said, a number of protests taking place uh, all across um, uh, all across Bessemer. There have been uh, activists, members of Congress uh, going down there, standing with uh, union workers there. Uh, again, uh, speaking to uh, the issues. Uh, that's one of the things. And so, uh, in fact, I'm going to play for you uh, again. Here's a video here uh, of, of the folks with, uh, with uh, Perfect Union U.S. Uh, addressing this very, very issue. Workers feel like they're in, in prison. When you are going to work every day with a heavy police presence, I think it absolutely levels this, this fear of, of, you know, what could happen. Again, it shows the way in which anti-union forces get all involved with local political forces. Police officers have been here on scene since day one. We feel like we've been harassed. We had cops tell us that we couldn't step off the sidewalk. When we're on the gates, the police ride around to our checkpoints. I mean, they're on. The, they're in the parking lot at all times. Uh, from the second you pull up, like that main entrance, they're generally right there. Lights flashing. Uh, anywhere from four to five SUVs, like at all times. They're up by the main front entrance. They are walking around the parking lot, oftentimes walking around the facility. Um, they're called uh, for really like the most mild like disturbances, almost as if they're like security in a way. But they're in marked Bessemer police cars. Some of the officers, they have reported to us that they are there to keep an eye on us. They sit right here at the front gate and they sit there and watch us the whole time we're here. We had one of our organizers that was working the front gate. The police officer told him that they need a count of every time that we are down here. They have two African-American officers from the Bessemer Police Department. Now, they claim this is private property, but they've got public police on site who are enforcing some kind of private rule. I asked them, was it a law? They said no. Um, to have city 
police, marked cars uh, patrolling a private property like this? And I, I think the answer is no, it's not normal. Uh, we're not used to seeing anything like it. Joining us right now is Reverend Dr. William J. Barber, president and, of course, uh, senior uh, lecturer for the repairs of the breach. He, he has been, of course, down to Alabama to support those Amazon workers, as you saw in that video. Um, Reverend Barber, what exactly has been the um, response that you've gotten or heard uh, from Jeff Bezos or the folks with Amazon with regards uh, to this, this effort to unionize? Well, you know, Jeff Bezos is um, an interesting character, and we got to be to say that like that. You know, he made $180 billion last year, about $60 billion more than he made the previous year. And, uh, you know, he has come out and said he's for $15 an hour, and he pays his workers 15 but what he doesn't tell you is that warehouse workers— right near his own plant that um, are unionized started $18, some of them at $21 an hour. When we were down there, uh, after we finished, they actually had an African-American woman come on, represent the company, and they coached her evidently to say, I, I don't deserve this much. I'm just an unskilled worker. Um, but you have people working in ice cream factories or processing factors just down the street that make more money than he does. And then in addition to that, <clears throat> you know, Bezos came out about he was given $10 million to say he was for Black Lives Matter. He listed NAACP, Urban League, several other groups. He deliberately did that. He actually puts that stuff inside the plant to say that he's for <clears throat> Black Lives. We don't know how much money he's given also in uh, some there's some Sometimes he may have been given out also so stocks to this organization, but be that as it may, that plan is 6,000 people, the best of 6,000 is 5,500 black workers rolling. And the question is, what is, does he care about the black lives in his plan? Because they can be fired at will. The black lives in his plan, 20,000 people in Amazon warehouses got sick during COVID. Many died. died. In his plant, they only get 15 minutes every six hours to go use the bathroom. In his plant, right after he did a big press conference about his chump change that he gave to a few black organizations, he cut the hazard pay, $2 hazard pay of the workers and increased their hours. Uh, so he's an interesting person, to say the least. And it's, it, when I was there, for instance, <clears throat> They do have police, but they have African-American policemen, city police, on the property that basically serve as an intimidation to the workers. All of this is because uh, uh, the, the, the Southern aristocracy, the ruling caste, like Bezos, the thing they fear the most <clears throat> is unionization in the South. You know, Alabama is the most unionized Southern state, and at one time had some of the most powerful unions in Birmingham, the steel workers, and so forth and so on. And the great fear is that union rights and voting rights and economic justice rights will all be connected and bring people together against the over against color and class and geography, the things that have been used to deliberately uh, segregate and separate people.
this is a serious fight, Arona. This is, in a sense, the um, economic Selma, way this goes, not just when they finish this count, but after they finish the count. Uh, these folk have already won whether they win the vote or not, and they're eventually going to win the vote. But this is huge because it could be a major rippling effect across the South. And if we ever figure out that voting rights is both an economic issue and a race issue, and that labor rights is both a race issue and an economic issue, and we build coalitions around that, we will find out that the South is really not conservative. It's just unorganized and deliberately divided. I'm going to address this later um, when I'm talking about um, why we uh, and Black-owned media is going after General Motors and every other major company when it comes to media spend. Because, Reverend Barber, what, when we talk about social justice, but then we don't really confront economic social justice. Mm -hmm. And see, what has happened is these companies... What they've done is, and I will use this word for a very precise reason, what they've done is pimp black folks in that they will make donations to the NAACP, to the NAACP LDF, to the Lawrence Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. They'll make donations to the National Urban League. They'll make it to, to churches. They'll make it to, but if you actually add up, if you add up, how much those 5,500 workers would get per hour times mm -hmm. per day times mm -hmm. per week, you will see that that small, that spare change yep. that black groups are getting. And so what we're saying is, hey, we don't need y'all cutting social justice checks to black folks if you fund black people. If you pay black people, if you don't uh, screw over black owned media, if you use black law firms and black accounting firms and black catering firms and black transportation companies, then we could literally fund our own organizations. Yeah. And, and, and they, this, this money comes at an attempt to mute the voice. Uh, I, I said in Bessemer, every group that he's given $10 million you know, it's $10 million. That's nothing to somebody that has $180 billion in one year. But $10 million. And said he, because he was concerned about black lives and he didn't care if he lost customers. Well, then everybody ought to take that money and say, we, either you change in the way you're cheating these word employees, but we're going to give it back to you and we're going to fight you because you cannot do that. And then inside the union, inside the warehouse and inside the organization, Roland, He's running, he's putting it on his website and on his, and, and in emails, look at what I did for black folk as a way of saying, you don't need a union, you don't need a contract, you just need to trust me. Um, I was on the call uh, yesterday with, uh, um, Rep, uh, I hope you'll have him on, historian Kelly, his name is Kelly, and he was telling the story of how because of the power of black and white folk coming together in the union movement, years ago, he said that the, 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 the corporate Southern aristocracy 
went after the unions and called them communists and got some black civil rights organizations to also join and call them communists. One of them was NAACP in Alabama. And then the next year turned around and, and outlawed the NAACP. In other words, these folk are playing checkers, chess. They ain't playing checkers. You got to check, is Bezos is probably also funding Alec at a higher rate. Um, uh, where is his voice? Where is his voice in, in, in these other issues? So you got to look at the people. And if you really want to help black people, pay us a living wage. Give us contract. Guarantee our um, uh, uh, health care. There was a young lady that testified at our rally. She caught COVID, one of 20,000 people that caught COVID. And her doctor says she needed four weeks. Now, they, he claims he cares about black lives. She's a black woman. They gave her two weeks and said, you have to find the rest on your own. We, we can't be muted on these issues. And that's why, you know, you heard me say, Roland, everybody's talking about race now with the voter suppression. And we should. Part of voter suppression is race. Part of it is class. Part of it's geographical, ge 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 geographical, because some of the bills they're putting out in Georgia, they're also putting in Arizona, where you only have 4% black mm -hmm. people. What you also got to look at, Roland, is that why didn't we stand, many groups stand up and call it racism when those eight white Democratic senators, five men, three women, joined in t stopping $15 minimum wage, which would have lifted 45% of black workers out of poverty and low wage if it had stayed in the COVID relief bill. That was a form of racism, classism, and elitism. And so what I love about you, Roland, is we got to raise these issues. And, and we aren't the only one. I know some folk going to get mad with us. That's all right. Because Dr. King, 56 years ago, this past Thursday, stood on the steps of the Alabama State House and said, the battle to suppress the vote and the battle to suppress labor rights and the fear of, of white and black masses joining one another has been a tactic used by the Southern white aristocracy to hold on to their money and to block economic justice. That's what Dr. King said 56 years ago last Thursday, standing on the step of the Alabama State House, and here we are again in Bessemer, Alabama. See, see, Doc, the, the, the thing that, the thing um, that I sort of walk people through, um, there are, and I, I got people who, sit, who, who, who hit me up and they're constantly like, but no, reparations is the most important thing. And this is what I keep saying. To get Congress to do that, you need 218 in the House. You need mm -hmm. 60 in the Senate. You need a president to sign it. If he vetoes it, you need two-thirds in the House, two-thirds mm -hmm. in the Senate. What I'm saying is there is money sitting right in front of you mm -hmm. that does not require congressional action. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand that argument in terms of Congress makes the move. It's going all right. This is what I'm saying. Right now, we're out here spending trillions of dollars. We are setting the trends. You got black folks out here creating TikTok dances that white girls are then copying badly, and then all of a sudden, they, we look up, and they on the Jimmy Fallon show. 
and they're getting signed up uh, to multi-million dollar endorsement deals uh, by companies. What I'm saying, this is where we go to corporate America, the publicly traded companies and the private ones, and who say, we ain't waiting for y'all to hit to get to your goals over five years. Get, you can get to your goals next week. You next can get week. to your goals right now. And so right. the demand has to be there. The pressure has to be there. And folk just got to be willing to go there. And folk got to be right. willing not, not, and not to be light. Because here's, look, I, I've always heard it. Fox News not going to call me. Hell, MSNBC not going to call me. It's some, mm-hmm. it's some black civil rights people won't even come on my show. Oh, because, mm-hmm. you know, Roland, he likes strong black coffee. Well, guess what? Damn sugar, damn cream. Sometimes it has to be strong and black. That's right. And you know what? Strong and black will also draw strong white that will address systemic racism and poverty because they understand the intersections. And you're right. This filibuster issue, we don't even need 60. We could go to 51. But, you, but you've got to have the pressure, right, to, to, to make that happen. And these corporations, we shouldn't allow any corporation to claim that they love black lives and they don't have people under union contracts and sharing in the profits and guaranteeing health care and guaranteed living wages. You know, that's like allowing a, a, a... I remember back in the day, we used to have these banquets, NAACP and other groups have banquets, and somebody who was anti-everything we stood for could buy an ad, and then we'd ask them to stand up during the banquet and say something. Uh-uh. Right. That, that, that's yeah. why my deal is you got to have a race equity index. If yeah. you are going to come, oh, you want a table? I want to know who's on your board. I want to know your senior management. I want to know, do you put money in black banks? I want to know what's your, what's your black supply, supplier uh, 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 diversity. I want to know all of that, because if you ain't doing all of that, you can't come by a little table and then, and then pick up uh, some little cheap award. No, you can't do that. And when I re- let me tell you, when I got to Bessemer, and I'm not ragging, I'm just telling you what folk, they asked me, you know, why is it that folk are being so easy on Bezos? Why are they allowing him to run on his website and put inside of his plant that he loves black lives and list the organization he's giving money to while we are down here struggling and dying and getting sick, every one of those 5,500 black folk that are in that Bessemer plant, Roland, they work at will. They can be fired at will, no just cause. There's nowhere in the world Bessemer can say for a $10 million, or that matter, $100 million, because even $100 million to a $189 billion is nothing. No way you can take $10 million, divvy it out over a few folks, and say, this shows I support black lives. Black lives need union contracts. Black lives need full living wages. Black lives need universal health care. Black lives need... Um, uh, to make sure that they have the kind of response inside of the uh, of the uh, of the warehouses, they tell us the problems they have with even going to human relations. They also share with us, Roland. One lady shared that when they're in a class, you know, the company is required to do certain education on on, on unions, so they'll have a class on unions and teach the wrong information. 
And then when one of the workers said, that's the wrong information, we know better, they call them in front of the class and take a picture of them and their ID card as a form of intimidation. You, you, you don't get to pay a little bit of chump change and do that kind of stuff to black people, brown people, white people, whoever they are, anybody that's truly committed to justice, truly committed to, to, to a just society for everybody. So in a real sense, this battle right now for uh, voting rights and this battle for union rights in the South, this, this is our economic Selma. And, 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 you know, a lot of people are saying we ought to go to the corporations and challenge them on voting rights. Well, some folk may not be able to go to the corporations because they already gone to the corporations before this fight. Right. So you can't talk about the corporation pulling money out of Georgia if the corporations are putting money in the organization that are fighting against, the, supposed to be standing against voter suppression. Come on, we gotta be honest about this, y'all. We gotta be honest, and the workers are saying that. This is not me, I'm telling you, when we got the best of us, this, these were the questions the workers were asking. That's why I'm so thankful to see that you got down there Bessemer, you have UFCW, you have the retail union, Black Lives Matters down there, you have some of the other uh, strong um, uh, white coalitions and Latino coalitions that are coming together in Bessemer and sending a signal across the South that uh, it's on, baby. This There's is a new ride. This is why, Reverend, you, you and I talk about all the time, and I, and I preach it constantly. You can't just talk about it. You can't just release press releases. You can't just release empty statements. You have to organize, mobilize. Period. 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 That's right. Period. That's Period. the only thing. That's the only thing. And you got to keep it connected, y'all. You can't just holler racism on voter suppression and you don't holler it on economic injustice. It's both and, it's not either or. Somebody asked me one day, is it race or class? You know what my answer is? It is. <laughs> <laughs> That's the answer. It is. It's not either or. It's both and. It's never been either or. Jim Crow is the father of race. Systemic racism is the father of race. And the original goal of systemic racism was to split black and white, low and wealth income people who were joining together to stand against the systems of slavery and stand against white aristocracy and the ruling class. And we can never forget that. You cannot reduce racism underneath an economic critique, but you cannot have a true race critique and not have an economic justice critique. It's, it is. They both go together. They're not separate. All right. Reverend Dr. Barber, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Doc. Uh, going to go to a break. When we come back, uh, I'm going to talk more about, again, what happens when we demand our dollars? What, what happens when we um, push hard uh, to ensure um, what happens? What happens uh, when um, we, what happens when we say, no, 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 we, we can fund this? What happens when we use our collective power? And what I'm going to do, folks, I'm going to walk you through and connect the dots. 
Because I think what is happening here is that too many of us are not quite understanding when those of us are saying enough is enough. So I'll unpack that and have our panel weigh in when we come back on Roland Martin Unfiltered. I believe that it's movement time again. In America today, the economy is not working for working people. The poor and the needy are being abused. You are the victims of power, and this is the abuse of economic power. I'm 23 years old. I work three jobs. Work seven days a week. No days off. They're paying people pennies on the dollar compared to what they profit, and it is time for this to end. Essential workers have been showing up to work, feeding us, caring for us, delivering goods to us throughout this entire pandemic, and they've been doing it on a measly $7.25 minimum wage. The highest check I ever got was literally $291. I can't take it no more. You know, the fight for 15 is a lot more than about $15 an hour. This is about a fight for your dignity. We have got to recognize that working people deserve livable wages. And it's long past time for this nation to go to 15 so that moms and dads don't have to choose between asthma inhalers and rent. I'm halfway homeless. The main reason that people end up in their cars is because income does not match housing cost. If I could just only work one job, I could have more time with them. It is time for the owners of Walmart, McDonald's, Dollar General, and other large corporations to get off welfare and pay their workers a living wage. And if you really want to tackle racial equity, you have to raise the minimum wage. We're not just fighting for our families, we're fighting for yours too. We need this. I'm going to fight for it until we get it. I'm not going to give up. We just need all workers to stand up as one nation and just fight together. Families are relying on these salaries and they must be paid at a minimum $15 an hour. $15 a minimum anyone should be making this to be able to stay out of poverty. I can't take it no more. I'm doing this for not only me, but for everybody. We need 15 right now. Your work keeps the community safe. But what keeps you safe at work? People in public service face unique dangers, and we need the right training, resources, and staffing to stay safe. But how do we make sure we have what we need to stay safe on the job? We join a union. Union members negotiate for the resources we need to keep us safe at work and protections if we're injured on the job. Union members are better trained and better protected. Job safety. That's the work you do is important. A lot of people depend on you and you deserve respect. Respect includes making a decent wage that reflects how hard you work for your community. So what's the best way to make sure you get the pay you deserve? Join a union. Union members are paid more than people with similar jobs who aren't in unions. For women and people of color, the union difference is even greater. The respect you deserve, the pay you've earned. That's the union difference. The work you do is important. A lot of people depend on you, and you deserve respect. Respect includes making a decent wage that reflects how hard you work for your community. So what's the best way to make sure you get the pay you deserve? Join a union. Union members are paid more than people with similar jobs who aren't in unions. For women and people of color, the union difference is even greater. The respect you deserve, the pay you've earned. That's the union difference.
Hi, I'm Eric Nolan. I'm Shantae Moore. Hi, my name is Latoya Luckett, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Been frozen out. Facing an extinction level event. We don't fight this fight right now. You're not going to have black on you. All right, folks. So um, I got tired of sitting down. So I said, you know what? I'm gonna sit here and stand up for this one. So, so let me let me let me, let me unpack this. Okay, let me unpack this if you kill. Um, uh, we're, we're talking about money. We're talking about money. And the segment's called "Where's Our Money." And so you, you heard Reverend Barber and I talking about this, where I was talking about this this whole idea of what is it that we can fund ourselves now. Earlier, my, my boy Dave came in and gave me a haircut. And Dave popped by. I paid Dave uh, his 30 bucks. So we're very good at funding hairstyles. We're very good at uh, funding when we go into the, to the beauty salon. We're very good at all those different things. But when we start talking about how do we make demands when we're already spending dollars. It's amazing how black folk get real uncomfortable. Like, black people get real uncomfortable. I, I can't tell y'all how many times I've had black people say, oh, you know, I don't, you know, you know Ro, Roland real militant. You know, he, he, he real aggressive with that thing. You know, uh, sometimes you just, you, you, you gotta make white folk feel comfortable. And so when, when Byron Allen took out this ad uh, in the Detroit Free Press is also going to run in the Wall Street Journal. And when we um, had the meeting with General Motors, and, and let me be real clear, this ain't a General Motors thing. We, we meeting with everybody. See, in media alone, we're not getting our money. We're not getting the money that we deserve as black-owned media from pharmaceuticals. We're not getting from the automotive sector. We're not, getting, we're not getting it from all of the sectors. See, when, when y'all heard me say, when y'all heard me say, y'all heard me say to Reverend Barber, I want to know black construction companies, black catering companies, black transportation companies, all of that. See, I, I'm no disrespect, and, and look, I am fully supportive of black people on corporate boards. But if your ass black and you are on a corporate board of directors and you are not asking and demanding the very same thing I'm talking about, it's a waste of time for us celebrating you on a board of directors. If you are a black CEO I need to know how you change the game. Not you getting money. Not you creating wealth just for your family. I need to know how is it that you as a black CEO 
as a black COO, as a black CTO, as a black CIO, as a black senior vice president, as a black board member, how are you changing the game? Not just for you. How are we challenging America where the money is being spent right now? Had a brother say, man, you always dog a reparation movement. No, I'm not. What I'm saying to you is that there is money literally being spent right now that we are not saying where's our fair share. White House announced $500 million going to states for COVID vaccine awareness. You should be asking in North Carolina, South Carolina, Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Missouri, Illinois. I can go on and on and on. How is that money going to be spent? Will it be spent with black vendors? Will it be spent? Y'all did not hear me say black organizations. What we have done in black America is we have allowed this entire infrastructure to seed black organizations and they have gotten a pittance of what we should be getting. Y'all heard Reverend Barbara say, we let folk come in and buy tables at our event. How much is the table? How much is the table? That's it? Do you understand? If a corporation is in a position to give, in a position to give contracts that are worth 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100, 200, 500 million dollars. The same black organizations can buy their own damn table. Do y'all see what I'm talking about here? All of these companies, all of these companies are sitting here. Oh, we're going to give, uh, we're going to give this money, uh, and we're going to give this money to this black group. But are you going to fund any black companies? General Motors announced a $10 million initiative to support social justice. Listen to me, y'all. $10 million. And they said, they said, we're going to give, we're going to give a million to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. A million. But if they were funding black media institutions properly, hell, we can give the million. Let, 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 me, let me sort of unpack this for y'all. Let, let me unpack this for y'all. See, I had to stand up on this one. I, could, I couldn't sit down on this one. 
and panel I'm coming to y'all because I, because you got Mustafa who's dealing with environmental justice. You got to run with context media. You got K Kelly uh, Strategist. When you start funding properly black companies, then we're not sitting here, y'all, tripping on some BS donation. We can't continue for, oh, we, we, we've set goals of 5%. Of, we've set a goal of 8%. We, that's it? That's it. General Motors, black people, 11.4% market share. Dollars you spend on advertising with black-owned media should match your market share. Go down the line to every corporation in this country. At some point, y'all, we got to recognize game, recognizing game. Don't you understand what it would be like if black folks, we could say, no, no. We can fund our own groups. We can fund our own groups. We good. We can fund our own groups. I, I love golf. I love golf. I love golf. I love golf. Imagine if the proper dollars are coming to Roller Martin Unfiltered, New Vision Media. Then I decide to say, you know what? Uh, I'm going to buy an outfitted, customized van for 10 HBCU golf teams. Y'all, I'm just, I'm just putting... No, no, no. We don't have to. Um, um, uh, General Motors, um, Ford, uh, Chrysler, Toyota, Mercedes. Could y'all please, could y'all please, please donate? Could y'all please donate a vehicle? Could y'all donate a vehicle to to, to, to this one HBCU and, and we'll take a picture and we'll put it out there and we'll show everybody and we'll praise y'all. We'll give y'all all the credit in the world because y'all gave us one van. No. If y'all spending $3 billion annually on advertising and if you give black on, if black on media deservedly gets two to 300 million of that money every single year, we can buy the damn van ourselves. Folks, what we are doing is we are literally giving away our hard-earned capital and loyalty to brands for nothing. And what I'm saying is when you hear me talk about this third reconstruction this notion of economic social justice is we send forth the word 
to every corporation in every single sector, we are coming. And we are coming to get what is ours. And we are going to use our voices, whether there's a legal strategy to sue you and your ad agencies, whether we're going to call you out by name in newspapers and magazines and on websites, on digital shows, on radio, in every single form. Because we simply cannot wait. Y'all look, I'm 52. I'll be 53 in November. No day is promised for any of us. And you can't take it with you. The question is, what you going to do with it while you got it? And so imagine, just I want you just imagine. Uh, imagine if all of a sudden, let's just say, $5 billion in media spending goes to black-owned media because of what we're doing. Let's just say five, $5 billion. Let's say this show then got 5% of the $5 billion annually. I'm just doing some basic math. Y'all, that's $50 million every year. That's just 5%. Five billion, ten percent of five billion, it's five hundred million. Ten percent of five hundred million is fifty million. Imagine then. I'm just I'm just throwing this out. Imagine then, if we said we're gonna take five million of the fifty million we get every year, and every year we are going to seed and fund a school of communications that already exists, but to bolster the program, to create the next generation of Roland Martins and folk who work for me and producers and writers and directors and camera operators. Do you all see how this changes the game? I need us to understand that black people, and Torun, I'm gonna come to you first, black people, we have been playing ourselves small. We have been going to people hat in hand, asking them for pennies on the dollar when we have been providing far more value to them. And imagine if we'd say this, not just to corporate America, but to the federal government, the state governments, to the county governments, to the city governments, to the school boards, that no longer are we going to accept the pennies that you have been offering. We are here to do as Dr. King said. We are here to cash a check that was sent back to us, stamped insufficient funds. No. Now we are saying is we see the money sitting right there in the vault. You ain't sending us a check. You can cash app it, PayPal it, Venmo it, Zelle, however you want to send it to us, but we are not going to play ourselves small.
folk, that's where we are right now. And if we learn the lesson of operating collectively and stop being in silos and stop taking pennies, we could have a media company that's the size of CNN and Fox News and Univision. We can have a construction company that's the size of the major construction companies, Turner. We could have PR companies that are, that are big as uh, uh, Sunshine and Sachs uh, and Lippin Group and all those different groups. I am sick and tired of saying that there are two points pre-COVID, there are 2.6 million black-owned businesses and 2.5 million only have one employee doing average revenue of $54,000. The time for us to stop playing small ball is over. It's time for us to play grown folk major league ball. And it ain't going to happen if we have a bunch of scared Negroes who are, who are so scared. I don't want to ask for a lot. No. It's time for us to stop playing ourselves small. Tarun, I'll start with you. And to... Um address an, an elephant in the room that people aren't really talking about. Um, we, as black people, as black entrepreneurs, and as black uh, media people, we get caught up in this idea of individualism over collectivism. Um, ever since 1964, one of the cons of that civil rights bill was that it kind of took away some of the energy that black people had when they traded with each other, when they didn't have a choice. It also took away some of the idea of community that we had, you know, and from Jim Crow up until the 1960s, we had Black-owned newspapers, we had Black-owned record labels, we had Black-owned radio, and there was an infrastructure where people who had a talent could take their writing gifts or their speaking gifts or their um, musical gifts, and they could create an infrastructure that would feed them and feed their communities and feed their families all the way down to um, grocery stores and land. What we have now is people who are so obsessed with going into white corporate America going into larger corporate America, making a name for themselves and not caring about bringing anything back for their community. That's a very much a fracture that has to be repaired and that has to start psychologically first before it starts anywhere else. We have to get out of this idea that we're all in these individual little cults and I got mine and everybody else has to get it the way they, they get it and, every, and, and start thinking collectively. That's gonna have to be the first thing. Um, the second thing is something that you alluded to and that Reverend um, Barbara alluded to is that we have to start making distinctions between executives, um, ex between black executives and executives who are black. Because you can be a black executive and not really be concerned about the well-being of your people outside of your own paycheck. Someone who's a black executive, someone who's an executive who is black, is thinking about what can he do to benefit his collective? What can he impart on people who may not be where he, he or she is? What wisdom can you take from corporate America, bring back to your community, build a new generation of people to follow you, to take out of corporate America and build our own infrastructure and build our own businesses? I think that's what's going to have to happen. And I think until we realize that we're going to have to think collectively instead of individually, we're going to keep going in the circle where we keep going back and begging for corporate corporations to pass money to donate, give donations to organizations that may or may not trickle down to the people who really need them, you know, to put up vanity projects to make it look like they're really concerned about black lives when none of that information and none of that knowledge or none of that pipeline goes to feed people who may be talented but may not have the resources. Ke that has to start with us. Kelly, we can either receive checks or we can write checks. No, I... I definitely agree with what's been said so far. One thing that I do want to point out, um, 
at the beginning of what you were talking about, you were saying about these Black C-suite leaders uh, who are in a position to actually do something uh, regarding bringing more money to the communities, regarding, you know, uplifting us as people. And like Terrain said, it's a matter of whether you are a Black executive or executive who is Black, but something else um, that needs to be taken into consideration is the lack of trust between those who are in these positions and the community at large, meaning when something goes down, when, when, when shit hits the fan, so to speak, do these C-suite leaders trust us, the, the general public, the consumer, to have their back? Meaning if they, if they resign or if they quit or if they get fired, do they trust us enough to boycott? Do they trust us enough to support them in their plight to help us? I feel like as as we have come into this individ individualistic society of, you know, me, 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 um, have to put myself out there first because no one else has my back, we have this lack of trust within our community such that we don't pour into each other the way that, you know, my parents did, my grandparents did. We don't trust our own businesses to help each other. So that's definitely something that we need to take into consideration when we have these conversations. The cost-benefit analysis of self-preservation, especially right. when you're in a C-suite, definitely needs to be taken into consideration. Because right now, these C-suite these leaders are saying, hey, it makes more sense for me not to say anything because I don't know if my community is going to have my back. Got it. Um, my second... I'm, I'm sorry? I said, I said, got it. Yeah. No. Um, and my second point was about whether we even trust ourselves with our craft and with our worth. You know, we did... I remember last year we did, like, the blackout on Instagram and everybody had a black tile... But it needs to be more than that. Going back to my point about boycotting and supporting and making sure that the change that we seek is something that we are creating. It, it's more than just a social media post. It's more than just marching out on the street. You have to talk with your dollars. You have to talk yeah, with your... It's, but that's what I'm saying. And mobilizing, you organizing. each other in order to do that. Mobilizing, organizing. You mobilize Absolutely. and organize your dollars. Uh, Mustafa. Well, C Street leaders, uh, you know, they have a responsibility for making sure that they stay connected to what's going on, um, you know, in the streets um, and with other individuals. And just let me say this, because, you know, I've been having this conversation with folks for a while now, Roland. I'm glad you're bringing this up, because we're at a transformational moment. You know, let's look at it on the federal government side. You got $2 trillion that the current administration says is going to flow out. You got 2 to $4 trillion around infrastructure. We should be making sure that our folks are positioned to be able to make sure that they're taking advantage of that. And there has to be accountability in the process from our current administration to make sure that, for once, we're actually building wealth inside of the various businesses um, that, that should have a level playing field. And, and we know that that's not the case, because when we look at federal contracting, and I know a lot about that, there's a small percentage that makes it to African-American communities to Latinx communities and indigenous communities. And then if we flip it and look on the corporate side, so we had a conversation around Amazon. So we know that this past year, they made 386, 387 billion dollars. Bezos, he's worth 180 billion. You got folks like Tesla, and you got um, the leadership there, 155 billion. You got Bill Gates, another 155, 156 billion. With all that being said, 
there are opportunities if, one, we put the right pressures and build the accountability in, both on the federal side and on the corporate side, that you could actually build real wealth inside of our community. But we have to ask the question, one, do others want us to build wealth? And then, two, are we comfortable enough with our own selves to be ready to do what's necessary to make that become a reality? I hope the answer is yes. And if the answer is yes, if we know all these dollars are flowing, then those big organizations should be helping to make sure that folks have the capacity and that the training is there and the mentoring is there for all the various businesses that are out there. Roland, I know you do work in that space, but we don't have enough folks who are saying, I see what this horizon looks like, and I'm willing to invest some of my time to make sure that right. other brothers and sisters are able to benefit. It's all about capacity. That's what it boils down to, folks. We're going to continue uh, driving this point home, getting our people to understand you got to understand economic social justice. We're still dealing with the craziness when it comes to what happens in these cases. We talked about the Derek Chauvin case. Uh, this is now going to um, going to a jury. Well, in St. Louis, my God, the jury, the federal jury, in the case of three white cops accused of beating a colleague, a black colleague working undercover, as a protester in 2017 returned a partial verdict yesterday, ruling two mistrials and declaring one of the officers not guilty of all charges. They, they deliberated for two days before finding St. Louis police officer Stephen Corte not guilty on all counts. Former cop Chris Myers was found not guilty on a civil rights charge, and the jury did not reach a verdict on a charge of, of destruction of evidence. The jury also did not reach a verdict on the civil rights charge against former officer Dustin Boone. Well, what the hell? Joining us now is Heather Taylor, was spokesperson for the Ethical Society of Police. Heather, glad to have you back on Rolling Unfiltered. I Thank you for having me. This brother, beaten, city settles for $5 million. So is this jury trying to tell us that no, did he just beat himself? Exactly, exactly. Uh, the, the arguments that, you know, he didn't have his hands up. He was running, you know, just the typical um, arguments that come whenever it's a black victim. In this case, it just happens to be a black officer. Uh, the, way it, the way the defense argued was that, you know, essentially beat himself, and so did the officers who testified. I've never seen so many officers lying in one, um, one hearing, in one, one trial in my life. It was just utterly disgusting. Uh, Christopher Myers is the brother who, who, who was beaten, and, and he has described... The injuries, the, the, folks, the, the, you see mm -hmm. the photo here? This is not just a busted lip, folks. Show the photo, please. This is not just a busted lip. I mean, he has suffered significant spinal injuries and other damage as well. And these three white cops get off. They get off for almost killing this brother, a fellow police officer. Yeah, our lives, you know, we're still black. When it's all said and done, you know, Luther Hall is black. Uh, this is a, a, a white, predominantly white jury. And we saw that. We've seen this all across the country. This is, we're a microcosm of what happens all around the nation. Even when it's a black officer, uh, we're still black. And there are two different criminal justice systems. One that's black and one that's for everyone else. What do you make of uh, Corte's lawyer saying, quote, um, that he's ecstatic and that he can now return to the St. Louis Police Department if he so chooses. There's no way in hell I would want <laughs> this cop on the force, but we also know about the racism that's in the St. Louis Police Department. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, it's scary. The community should be afraid. Officers within that department should be afraid. And if this guy comes back, uh, the, the tone that it sets, there is no way that the, the police department can recover from that. Community, uh, they should be outraged. Other officers should be outraged about that. Y'all have laid out um, in a significant way uh, the history of this department and, and, and the kind of racism uh, that has existed. Um, and, 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 and let folks know what we're talking about, how deep this is. Yeah, we've been dealing with this forever. 90 days before Luther Hall was brutally beaten by several white officers, Officer Milton Green was shot by a white officer. That white officer was never charged. He was allowed to resign. Uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't allowed to resign because he shot Milton Green. It was for another charge. He's then hired at another police department. Uh, we have written reports. We've co-authored, I've co-authored a 112-page report about systemic racism, corruption in 2016, co-authored another one in 2020 that was 60 pages that outlined systemic racism, corruption, you name it. And, you know, it's a fight. It's been a fight my 20-year my career that I was there, and it continues to be a fight. And uh, I don't know what really can change it except for a top-to-bottom um, review and removal of a lot of commanders and a lot of people that are uh, within that police department that have no business there. You've had black police chiefs, and they've been run away. They've been run off. So, uh, and, and of course, you got a mayoral race going on right now. Uh, Tashara Jones uh, is running. There's a final debate tonight between both candidates. Uh, the election is April 6th. Uh, is, is that what it's going to take? Uh, a change in leadership at the top? Like, you know, how does it change? Yeah, we endorsed Tashara Jones. The Ethical Society of Police endorsed her because we know it's going to take someone that's really understands this community, that's from this community. She's going to have to put someone in place as a chief. We have a black chief now. We still have the same problems. We have to have someone. He's a nice guy, but we need somebody that's a leader that's going to put their foot in someone's backside when they're wrong. Uh, you got to fire these people. We can't talk about training. You cannot train away racism. You cannot train away rapists. We have rapists in, in racism. We have uh, misogyny. You name it. You can't train those things away. You have to fire them, and you have to do a better with the job of firing these people instead of allowing these fools to run rampant uh, with a badge and a gun. It is certainly uh, disheartening um, that those three essentially are walking free. Viciously, viciously beating this brother, fellow cop. Mm. Heather Taylor, we certainly appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Appreciate you too, always. Folks, the Virginia Beach branch of the NAACP are calling for a citizen's review board with full investigative and subpoena powers after the, the deadly oceanfront shootings that took place on Friday. The shootings took the lives of Donovan Lynch and DeShayla Harris. The police chief revealed that the officer who fatally shot Lynch had a body camera that was not activated at the time. The NAACP attended a special session with the city regarding the shooting this afternoon. And joining us now is Dr. Karen Hills Pruton, president of the Virginia Beach NAACP. I'm glad to have you uh, on the show here, uh, Karen. Look, I have said this repeatedly. I fundamentally believe if you're a cop with a body camera and you do not turn it on, you should automatically be fired. Certainly agree with that. 
what what explanation was given? Like, I, mean, I don't understand. What's the whole, <laughs> what's the point of wearing a body camera if, you, if you're going to turn it off? Absolutely. I certainly agree with that. That's a $5.5 million investment for the city. Um, those are the questions that we have for the city ourselves. Um, had a recent meeting on today where the chief of police um, explained more um, but didn't share much of anything because now he's turned the investigation over to the state police. But right now, no explanation given as to why the body-worn camera was not turned on. So... In the case of Donovan, how, 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 how did he get shot? Well, don't know. There were three separate shootings down at the oceanfront on Friday, March the 26th. Um, we, I mean, we don't have the specifics of what happened between the exchange between Donovan and the officer. That was one of the incidents that happened down at the oceanfront. There were two other incidents. One, um, and three people were arrested as a result of the one um, where um, multiple shots were fired. Um, and then a second incident where an individual, Deshayla Harris, who's deceased now, my condolences to her family, she was hit by one of the bullets from the first incident. And then we have this situation of this interaction between Donovan, Mr. Lynch, and an officer, which we don't know much because Donovan is not here to tell us. And, of course, the officer information has not been released yet. Um, th this is, uh, it is cer it's certainly troubling what took place, uh, this weekend. Um, young man, entrepreneur, um, uh, saw one story, um, uh, first cousin to a uh, singer for Pharrell, who's, who's there from Virginia Beach. Uh, and, um, and again, the switching of stores is also a problem, uh, when it comes to these police officers, because there were several stories being told. Friday and Saturday. And so have y'all gotten it, actually a straight answer as to what exactly what went, what went on? No, not a straight answer as to what exactly went on. Um, there was um, a press conference on Saturday where um, there was a, a sharing by the police the police chief that there was a gun uh, in the vicinity. That's how he described it as a, a gun in the vicinity. And he just left that statement there with the public. I guess that was a way for him to kind of change the trajectory of how Mr. Lynch may have been viewed um, in the situation. But what he failed to um, explain to the um, to the general public, which he has access to, is that Mr. Lynch was illegally gun-permitted individual. And so if there was a gun found in the vicinity, um, then he was a legal gun owner. So what what are you saying when you say that? I mean, again... And, and, and Virginia's an open-to-carry state. So basically we're saying if you're white and you're open-to-carry, cool. But if you're black... Uh, uh, and in fact, uh, the family's saying that he was approaching an officer to say hello who he went to high school with, and he ends up dead. Um... I, I've heard that version of, yes, I believe that that's, that is what the family is saying, that there was a connection between him and the officer. Absolutely. Mm, mm. Well, certainly keep us up to date about uh, this particular case and, and what goes and what happens next. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Kelly, what greatly bothers me again, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, how the hell do you have a camera and you don't turn it on? The point of the camera is to record what the hell you do.
No, I am definitely a proponent of body cameras and any other type of technology or apparatus that is aimed at holding police officers accountable. So the fact that this camera was turned either turned off or uh, never on in the first place shows to me that these officers more or less were deliberately trying not to be held accountable for their actions. Um, it is greatly disturbing to me, but also expected that a white officer does not take into consideration that they have black colleagues and they treat black colleagues like they would a criminal on the street. That is greatly disturbing, but also expected. Um, unfortunately, it was also expected that uh, these officers would either be acquitted or hung jury um, and, and the like, um, which is why I'm paying so much attention to the Chauvin case regarding George Floyd, because this could truly set a precedent for cases across the country and across jurisdictions that it is possible to convict an officer of murder, of assault, of of a crime that they committed and they can't hide behind their badge any longer um, and act like they were just doing their job when clearly they weren't doing their job. Uh, I, 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 that's why I'm looking so closely at the Chauvin case. But when, the, when it comes to this case, um, this is a clear cut situation of business as usual. And we're trying to combat that theory. We're trying to combat that narrative with the Chauvin case and other cases coming down the pike. So hopefully um, with the hung jury, it means that it's possible for this trial to, for this case to come back um, because it was a hung jury. So hopefully it comes back with more evidence, more proof um, and, and a prosecution or prosecutors rather who really believe in the case and believe that these officers need to go to jail for what they did. Well, look, uh, mistrials, they might have to get a try again. I was in a St. Louis case here, but I, 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 Mustafa, again, it, ba it, it baffles me. I, I, every single time I hear one of these cases, oh, cop had a body camera, but it wasn't turned on. So now, same thing, of course, Breonna Taylor. Uh, same thing when they had the protest there in Louisville, the protest in Louisville, where uh, the, the brother who's a barbecue uh, restaurant owner uh, was uh, shot and killed. Oh, same thing. Oh, c camera wasn't on. You know, that, that doesn't fly anymore. There's new technology that's out there for those who follow these types of things. You know, there's technology that when you're about to turn the camera off, a voice can come on and say, you know, powering down the system now. There's also new technology where you have body cameras where it actually comes back on when you move. So it's all about if you want to make the investments to make sure of that. But it's also about building into the process and letting your officers know that if you turn this off, there are going to be repercussions for you turning it off, uh, you know, and whatever the, the sets of reasons are for someone being able to turn it off. The, the other part of it is, you know, when we go back out to St. Louis, we've got to stop allowing police officers to be able to move from one department to the next. We don't allow bad doctors to be able to do it. We don't allow bad dentists to be able to do it. So somebody who actually has your, you know, your life in your hands, they should not be able to move around. And then the other part that I'll close off with is that the Department of Justice has to get engaged in these cases. And then they have to put the pressure on, they have to do the analysis that's there, and we gotta stop funding with federal dollars these uh, police forces that continue to have these significant problems. So if you wanna get somebody to change, we've tried all these other things, then you gotta hit them in the pocket. So they no longer get these federal dollars. 
if they have a, a case where they bust, you know, a drug ring or something like that, in many instances, they get to take in those resources. No, you don't get those resources either. So if you want to see change happen, then you also got to deal with it on the economic side. Um, absolutely. Uh, speaking of the economic side, uh, the pressure continues on corporations uh, to take a stand against the Republicans' voter suppression law in Georgia. A lot of pressure being placed on Home Depot. Arthur Blank, of course, made his billions from Home Depot on the Atlanta Falcons. He's now decided to open his mouth. Now, this is a statement from the Atlanta Falcons website. Uh, go to my computer, please. Thank you, Eric. Statement from Arthur Blank on Georgia voting rights. Uh, this is what it says. Uh, the following is a statement from Arthur M. Blank, Atlanta Falcons owner and chairman on Georgia voting rights. Every voice and every vote matters and should be heard through our democratic process in Georgia. The right to vote is simply sacred. We should be working to make voting easier and not harder for every eligible citizen. To that end, AMBSE leadership, along with our nonprofit partners, conveyed that ideal directly to state officials in recent weeks. Our businesses and family foundation will continue to actively support efforts that advance voting access for the citizens of Georgia and across the nation. To run, it would have been nice to have seen this three weeks ago. It would have been nice to have seen this before it passed the House, before it passed the Senate, before it got signed by the governor uh, of Georgia, Brian Kemp. Well, you know, this is a very, it's a very political statement. And when I say it's a political statement, I mean it says a lot. It sounds like it says a lot without really saying anything. Um, corporations in Georgia have to walk a very fine line here because there's this image of what Atlanta is. And I tell people all the time, you have Atlanta, which is where I'm based, and then you have Georgia. The city, the, the state of Georgia is run by Georgia. Atlanta is sort of like this enclave of black entrepreneurship and black progress that really has to figure out how it's going to work with the state. What you're seeing with a lot of these corporations, they're really just playing the middle and sitting on the fence until something gets so um, outrageous that they can't say anything anymore. Um, and unfortunately, that's sort of a historic thing that happens in this area. You have corporations who may make a statement of saying you know, we're against Jim Crow, but we won't take any definite steps to really kind of like alleviate that. We're against voter suppression, but we won't take any immediate steps to say anything about that, to make to move um, policy with our dollars. What you're seeing, Arthur Blank's statement, is just basically a continuation of that sort of thing. You have a lot of corporations really concern, are concerned about their bottom line. They're not concerned about their moral responsibilities. And I think this case and I think this legislation is going to put a lot more corporations who are based in Georgia, from the film industry to Coca-Cola to all these places they call Georgia home, is going to make them have to have a come-to-Jesus meeting, so to speak, about what they really stand for outside of profit. The only way you can really move that is if you make it too uncomfortable for them financially to ignore it. And I think that's what's going to have to happen here. Um, Mustafa, too little, too late. It's not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. They, he was silent for a long time. So, yeah, too late. Kelly? It is too late, but the issue here is, again, this goes back to what we were talking about, um, even with the Black Sea suite leaders, uh, the fact that we need to support them in making uh, decisions that are actually beneficial to us. So 
that cost benefit analysis of self-preservation and whether, you know, if if money is more important or a more stable choice to make. Um, if these corporations actually felt the power of our purse strings and were convinced that if they didn't make a statement earlier, then we would be pulling our uh, monies back from their corporations and their businesses, then I feel like we would have had a statement earlier uh, before uh, the governor signed this bill. So we need to really think about how we spend our dollars, how um, we hold these C-suite people accountable um, before we basically say too little too late. Because if we are proactive in making sure that our causes are heard and that we actually put our money where our mouth is when our causes are heard, then we won't have situations like this. Well, uh, again, uh, I just, uh, it's like, okay, I mean, thanks for the statement, but, you know, right. I'm, I'm just saying, like now, like now, I mean, it, the, the whole point is for you to say this before it happens. That's the whole point. All right, we're going to go to break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the judicial nominees put forth today by President Joe Biden, including three black women. That's next on Rolling Mark Unfiltered. Who needs a little love today? Who needs some love sent their way? What's up, y'all? I'm Will Packer. Hello, I'm Bishop TDJ. What up, Lana Well, and you are watching Rolling Martin Unfiltered. President Joe Biden announced his first judicial nominees yesterday, today, including three black women for circuit court vacancies. The group includes the first Asian American woman for the district court in Washington, D.C., and the first woman of color for the district court in Maryland. The pick that is getting the most attention is Judge Katanji Brown Jackson for the U.S. Court of Appeals the D.C. Circuit. She is widely seen as a future Supreme Court prospect after the president promised to choose a black woman if a seat becomes vacant while he's in office. Jackson is being named to fill the vacancy left by Attorney General Merrick Garland on what some consider the second most influential federal court. This is, first of all, Katanji Brown, Mustafa, should have been picked by President Obama to replace Antonin Scalia. First of all, I, I don't care what, look, I don't care if people get mad at me, I don't want to. I, I think this, this was one of the biggest screw-ups of President Obama. Not only is Katanji Brown a sister, she's also the sister-in-law of then-House Speaker Paul Ryan. Do you, what, what, what kills me, I'm, I'm, I'm still, y'all, I'm still a little confused by it. You had a perfect opportunity. First of all, Republicans were not going to confirm anybody, including her. I argued then, I argued then, that if you appoint a black woman, you would force these old white men to have to have stand up against the first black woman ever appointed to the Supreme Court. The heat that would have been on their ass for nine months would have been amazing. 
Obama goes appoint a white guy, which who nobody was fighting for. It's kind of like, eh, we've had 105 of those before. Uh, and so, again, clearly Biden understands this and is laying the groundwork. He's already said his first vacancy is going to be a black woman. Yeah, I mean, you got to give you got to give President Biden credit, you know. He's, he's been making some good moves. You know, I, I have my other issues that I wish he would do better on. But this is one of those that meets up with this transitional moment that, that we have, this transformational moment that we have. I mean, she's an incredible, incredible litigator, uh, will be a great compliment to the court. And this also begins that process that we talked about when the former president uh, began to, you know, just populate the court with these extreme conservative um, folks and began to dismantle, you know, many of the, the various laws and, and actions that were necessary. So to see these three sisters and uh, actually a very diverse set of candidates that he's moving forward is a very positive step. Kelly, there were a lot of Democrats who said that President Barack Obama was not as focused on the federal bench as he should be, as Republicans are. This is important. I have been saying this consistently. Democrats cannot allow Republicans to control that federal bench because they are the final arbiters of our laws. That's absolutely right. The uh, Republicans know uh, really where the power lies. And unfortunately, uh, the public d is not fully aware of exactly how the judiciary is set up. Um, it's not just about the Supreme Court. There are many layers before any case gets to the Supreme Court. So the fact that uh, uh, Mitch McConnell basically packed the court um, with over, I want to say over 200 something uh, judges during Trump's uh, presidency and, and made sure that they were ultra conservative, made sure that the conservative movement, the conservative policies would either stay in place or be created while on the bench. That's a really scary thought. Um, talk about issues like women's rights, uh, pro-life right, uh, pro-life issues, um, um, everything. Um, gets heard on the bench. And McConnell knows that. Republicans know that. It's time for the Democrats to get on the ball with realizing that it's not just about the executive branch. It's not just about the legislative branch. This past election, we were really concentrating on making sure we got uh, the two senators from Georgia and the Senate. We were really concentrating on increasing the majority in the House. We were really concentrated on getting Biden into the White House. But with all of those things taken into consideration, we were not taking into consideration who's going to be on these benches, who is actually going to interpret the laws that the legislature comes out, uh, who interprets the laws that Biden um, comes down the pipe through his executive orders. Those are the people who, I don't want to say really matter, but that that is the balance of the other two branches here. So I'm personally very excited, the fact that Biden is committed to a Black woman finally going on the Supreme Court. I think that is a perspective that uh, America needs, especially in these issues, especially in these cases that come down SCOTUS. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to see what happens with that. And with the Senate that even though we have a razor thin majority, it's possible that she can actually become the first black woman on the bench. So I'm excited for that uh, to possibly happen. Every single law can be challenged in the court system to run. That's why judges matter. 
Exactly. And there's also this something we need to pay attention to. You have the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. A lot of times what happens, depending on who the judge is, if the, if the letter of the law benefits what they see as keeping the status quo in check, they're going to stick with that. And they're not going to talk about trying to open up the law to make to be inclusive to every American citizen. With the black woman on the bench and eventually on the Supreme Court, we may have more of an idea about what the spirit of the law means in America, which is on paper is supposed to be free. Um, you know, everybody, every issue, every issue that affects American citizens gets a fair hearing by somebody, by a jury or their peers, and by people who may understand the culture of the people who are bringing these complaints. And that goes all the way back to the things we talked about through the whole show, from police brutality to union to unionizing to labor rights to um, even the Chauvin case. All these things have to be set, all these, all these cases have to be seen by a judge. And if the judge is more concerned with keeping the status quo in place instead of delivering justice, it's, 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 it's a detriment to all Americans. So I think this is a beautiful thing. Um, absolutely. Uh, and again, folks, to understand the impact of judges, let's go to New York. All inmates in New York's jails and prisons, all of them, folks, are being required, are being required uh, for a vaccine. This is a result uh, of a judicial ruling. Now, folks, look, th this is, again, again, I don't know how many times I can explain to people why, why these things matter. Uh, but uh, the reality is they do. Justice Allison Tewitt of the New York State Supreme Court said there is no acceptable excuse for this deliberate exclusion. Governor Cuomo's office, Andrew Cuomo's office, responded to the ruling today by expanding the state's coronavirus vaccine eligibility to include all incarcerated individuals. According to the New York Times, 1,100 prisoners have tested positive for the virus since the beginning of last month, and five have died. No better example, Mustafa, why judges, the right judges, matter. you got to have the folks in place. Uh, and when you don't, you, you get all these, these bad rulings, you get all these things that put us further and further behind the eight ball, if I can say it that way. And, and COVID, you know, this is just another example that of why we need to make sure that we have everyone in place on the, on the judicial side, on the legislative side, on the executive side, you got to understand how all this stuff comes together to actually end up helping to protect our communities or to create these disparities that can, you know, that, that can be devastating. Uh, uh, it, it makes no sense in this country, frankly, um, uh, Kelly, how people act like, oh, they're prisoners. Okay, it doesn't matter. doesn't matter. Duh, 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 duh. No vaccines. Y'all can be last. No. In fact, because if you're actually a worker in the prison, you can be infected and take it home. Yeah, the the <laughs> prisoners are people too. Period. That that is what it comes down to. Um, there was a surge in the prisons regarding uh, COVID nineteen infections, and at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw a lot of stories come out about how prisoners were, you know, stuck with like one mask for weeks or no mask at all, or you know, if if they were at all infected, they were never uh, sequestered or, you know, quarantined. So the infection spread throughout the prisons. Um, but they're people too. And what's more important, a lot of these prisoners get out, you know, by way of parole or exoneration or whatever. And they're still a person. I, I'm, I'm going to keep reiterating that. They will leave, like, a lot of them will leave prison um, by way of whatever type of release. And they need to be protected. 
so that we are also protected. This is not a, a situation where, you know, it should be a caste system or a class system as to who gets this vaccine. Um, everybody is affected. You know, COVID doesn't know about money and tax brackets and race. It's you are either going to die from it or you are going to survive. And we have over half a million people who have died from it because our government at the time did not make that correlation. So we we need to take into consideration prisoners and people who work in the prisons when it comes to vaccinations as well, because they're, they're simply people too. To run. No, I agree with everything that um, Kelly said. I think there's um, an attitude of dehumanization and brutalization that people feel is okay for people who are incarcerated. And I think what you saw before this legislation was passed is just a manifestation of that. These are still human beings, and these are human beings who deserve health care. These are human beings who deserve respect. And you also, as she said, you have to look at the fact that eventually they're going to be um, released and they're going to go into the general population and possibly affect people if they're not taken care of. And you also have to look at situations inside prisons where there's massive overcrowding, mistreatment, that sort of thing. So it's necessary to take care of these people psychologically and physically so we can have people who are somewhat healthy going back out into the world so we don't have these things, these, these cycles continuing where people who feel like they're on the lowest on the totem pole feel brutalized and then they go out and brutalize other people. All right, folks, that is it for us, Mustafa, Kelly, and Tarun. I certainly appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Folks, if y'all want to support the work that we do here at Roland Martin Unfiltered, bringing you news information you're really not going to get anywhere else, please do so by supporting us via Cash App, dollar sign RM Unfiltered, uh, paypal.me forward slash rmartinunfiltered, venmo.com forward slash rm unfiltered. Zell is rolling at rollinsmartin.com. You can also do rolling at rollinmartinunfiltered.com. You can send a money order to New Vision Media, 1625. Uh, K Street Northwest, Suite 400, Washington, D.C., 2006. Um, again, you can do that. Uh, please, the, the dollars that you give go to support what we do. Uh, our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans, contributing five, 50 bucks each. That's $4.19 a day, 13 cents uh, a month. Uh, and then, uh, excuse me, 13 cents a day uh, to support uh, what we do. And so, um, what I want to do right here is, let's see here, I'm going to go to, um, I want to show, uh, I'm going to shout some name out, some people who have given us uh, via Zale. Eugene Evans, thank you so very much uh, for your donation. Uh, also, Sharon Moore, let's see here, Gloria Middleton, thank you very much. Ray Malone, Tony Sanders, Melva Thornton, uh, Brent Sterling, uh, Denise Miller, let's see here, Esther Boykin, Michael Jr. Michael, you just put Michael Jr. You didn't put anything else. Uh, Nellie Matlock, Felicia Brown. Thank you so very much. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Richard Bromfield. Uh, thank you. Um, Eliza Simmons. Thank you very much. Sharonda Rumbaya. Thanks a lot. Atasha Quarles. Thank you so very much. Lamont LLC. Sharon McKeithen. Lovey Ware. Clint Humphrey. Thanks a lot. Uh, Jennifer Badeau. Uh, Alex Crowder. Thanks a lot. Uh, let's see here. Lucille Darrell, um, Jamario Cooper. Thanks a lot. Okay, let's see here. Come on. Uh, Candace Morrison. Uh, thanks a bunch. Uh, Celestine uh, Rustle or Celestine Rustle. Thank you so very much. Uh, big contribution. Thanks a lot. Louise Hilliard. Thank you so very much. Uh, Crystal Edwards. Uh, Christopher Taylor. Sherilyn Parham. Melissa Haynes. Taylor Hooks. And Barry Solomon, big, 
donation. Barry, you the man. Barry's gotten now three shout outs. Y'all saw what he gave you, you know why. All right, y'all, that's it for us. I appreciate it. Uh, I look forward to seeing y'all tomorrow right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Don't forget, again, cash out, dollar sign, RM Unfiltered. PayPal.me forward slash RM Martin Unfiltered. Venmo.com forward slash RM Unfiltered. Zell is Roland at RolandSmartin.com. Roland at RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. And, of course, uh, y'all can also, um, you can, uh, if you give to us on YouTube, don't remember, we only get 55% of that. So if you give to us direct, then all 100% goes to us here with the show. Thank you so very much. Uh, and shout out to my niece, uh, Anastasia. Today's her birthday. Uh, nickname is Bird. So happy birthday, Bird. We got to go. BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. I'm late. I'm late for the important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com. Come.